Hello and welcome to the Rogue Ministry Podcast. This is Justin Barringer, the Rogue Minister, and I'm here with my co-host. This is Rachel, the creator of Speech Strong Resources. And together we are co-founders of Diapers Etc. And of course, host of the Rogue Ministry Podcast, creating and sustaining faithful ministries. Well, podcast listeners, uh, we have Dustin Benick here with us today. We're excited. Welcome, Dustin. Thank you, Justin. It's great to be here. Dustin is um, uh, a recently minted PhD, um, which, of course, those of y'all who know that I'm still doing mine means that I am incredibly jealous. Um, He's currently not too far down the road here for me in Texas. But um, Dustin, if you would tell us about your PhD work, because I think that's where this is going to start the conversation about the kind of ministry you've been involved in, and then we'll take it from there. Right, right. Yeah. So I, um, I just wrapped up my, my, my PhD from Duke Divinity School, and I'm a practical theologian uh, who studies religious organizations during times of transition and uncertainty. Uh, the, the dissertation was called Adaptive Church, a Practical Theology of uh, Adaptive Work in the Pacific Northwest. And I was interested in trying to think about the conditions and conceptual frameworks and practices that enable individuals and communities to uh, respond to uncertain circumstances in collaborative and faithful ways. Uh, so I did that through an extended case study of two, two organizations in the region. One was called the Parish Collective, and one was called the Office of Church Engagement, uh, two groups who are similar in many ways, but different in all sorts of ways as well. And I'm happy to, happy to share a little bit more about that, Justin. Um, but, but what, um, what I think was interesting about these cases in the Northwest is that, that the Pacific Northwest is this context where you have, um, this, uh, kind of a marginal position for many religious organizations and also this, uh, kind of history of religious entrepreneurship. So it creates this context that is really generative for adaptive Mm -hmm. and innovative approaches to, um, religious life and also religious leadership. So you, you um, keep talking about adaptive. Could you, could you break that down for us a little bit more? I mean, we, I think I get a general idea of that, but what do you mean in, the, in this particular context of the research you are doing? Yeah, so, so the language is drawing a little bit on um, a, uh, a theorist called Ronald Heifetz. He makes this distinction between adaptive challenges and technical challenges. Mm. Um, so, so technical challenges are something uh, that you can, you can fix with, uh, direction, some type of command, um, some type of clear solution. Um, adaptive challenges are challenges that there's not a clear solution. Uh, they're conflicts between the values that a community holds and their present circumstances. Mm. Uh, there's kind of this dissonance. There's this gap. Uh, and as I was listening to, to leaders um, in the Northwest and everyday people of faith, um, I asked them two questions. Who are you working with? Uh, and what are the challenges that you face? Mm. And as I listened to the second question, I realized that there was like a whole host of adaptive challenges that individuals and communities were trying to uh, trying to solve. Uh, there was no clear template. Uh, there wasn't always a clear way forward. There wasn't a script. And it was a challenge that required um, collective effort in order 
to change the ways that individuals and communities imagined both uh, ministry and the vocation of leader, religious leadership in the region. I like, I like that because it reminds me of Jacques Ellul's work, who I really enjoy of yeah. this, this idea that there's, there's sort of usually those, um, you, you have technological fixes, it's usually about efficiency, it's usually about just let's solve the problem, let's move on with it. But these other kind of challenges kind of uh, make themselves, they, they, they usually are ongoing, right? Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you have adapted to, you know, issue X or, or whatever, then you realize that that brings up another thing. You know, mm -hmm. we talk about this in, in some of my work with the context of friendship, right? The, the friendship is inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, so say a little bit more then about, um, you can talk about one or both organizations and maybe one story that sticks out um, to you in, in that research where these adaptive challenges sort of surfaced and how, yeah. how they went about um, responding mm -hmm. to those. Sure, sure, I'd love to share. Um, so maybe I'll just sharp, start by sharing a little bit about each organization, their mission, uh, yeah, and then maybe a little bit about some of the, the challenges that, that they identified, and then um, can certainly talk about how, how they engage with their local communities. Um, so, so the Parish Collective, the mission of the Parish Collective is to, to grow roots and weave links among followers of Jesus who are seeking to grow expressions of love and care in their neighborhoods. Uh, so the, the kind of the focal center for the Parish Collective is, is the neighborhood. Uh, they're trying to think about ways to resource and reground the church in the local neighborhood. Mm. Um, the also Office of Church Engagement, uh, their mission is to partner with churches and other Christian ministries as they discern how to be the church and do ministry in the Western region of the United States and around the world. Uh, they specifically understand their work as um, functioning as a resource for vision casting, planning, and developing new forms of ministry capable of effectively engaging a rapidly changing culture. Um, so you see here the, the primary focus for uh, the Office of Church Engagement is, is local churches and local ministries, uh, whereas the Parish Collective primarily focuses on um, local neighborhoods and neighborhood expressions, and mm -hmm. out of that partners with denominations, uh, nonprofits, and congregations. The focal center remains the neighborhood. Uh, mm -hmm. The Office of Church Engagement, however, they're interested in connecting with local churches and congregations. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's this sense that um, that the local church is is the bedrock, the anchor of of religious life within a particular community. Um, so even as as they're engaging in um, some very very different practices, they actually have um, a similar vision to connect and resource uh, people of faith in their particular context and in their particular locale. Um, they, they also share several um, similar challenges. So as I was sharing earlier, Justin, about I asked them, what are the challenges that you faced? Um, I, did, I did about 42 interviews across the region, and I asked, what, what are the challenges that you face? You know, what are the, the challenges that you don't have a good answer for? And uh, I identified seven primary challenges. Uh, one was relational engagement. So how do you engage with people and communities? Uh, second was leadership development. Um, and that includes not just pastoral leadership development, but um, leadership development for people who have an imagination for 
religious leadership beyond a congregational context. Mm -hmm. um, this type of kind of ecological imagination where you can see the connections of all the different parts of a community of faith. Uh, mm -hmm. Third, uh, the challenge of boundary zone work. Uh, so this is drawing on a thinker called Gary Gunderson, who talks about the boundary zone as this space of, of kind of conflict and creativity, where two uh, kind of existing orders are coming into, um, coming into encounter with each other. So it's both a, a space of creativity, but it's also a space of, of tension. It's kind of the not yet of Christian existence, and it's also the not yet of organizational change. So on that, would, give, me, give me an example of what what that would look like is it yeah. the same kind of idea sort of liminal space or is there something mm -hmm. what, what yeah just right. give me an example yeah. of what you mean by that, that it has it has a a slightly different a slightly more um like organizational referent so it's trying to talk think about how how organizations and communities change mm -hmm. um so there's this boundary zone where um the the practices and the parameters aren't clearly defined um, some people in the region talked about it, how we're working without scripts. We don't have clear templates. Um, there's not clear conventions about how to act in this space in this moment. Mm. Um, one, one leader I talked to in the region um, said that we are, we are on like the beginning of kind of a 200 or 250 year curve where the church is changing. Mm. We don't know exactly how it's changing or what the outcome will be. Uh, but we're a part of this moment of individual and collective change. And we're just trying to lean into that boundary zone. Mm. This wasn't his language, but we're just trying to lean into that space in faithful and creative ways. Okay. Yeah. And so then what were the, I think you gave us three points out of seven. Yeah. So that what, was, what uh, the, other ones? um, the, the fifth one is post Christendom. Um, so this idea that, uh, religious organizations exist on the margin of society. Um, the sixth is financial stability. Um, just this, uh, the sense that um, religious organizations exist in a precarious place. Uh, the next one was loneliness and isolation. Uh, many people across these organizations are, are lonely. They're disconnected. They're doing thoughtful, creative work, but they oftentimes don't know each other. Um, and then finally, just the need to be connected to place. So mm -hmm. both of these organizations are trying to ground people in their specific community and locale. Um, and the challenge is how to, how to root them there when in this moment we live displaced lives that are oftentimes disconnected from our places. Yeah. Had you done all of your research and writing before the pandemic? Uh, yes. I, um, I submitted my, my dissertation March 15th. Okay. Um, and was literally, you know, putting the final periods and commas as the, you know, as the pandemic was breaking. And um, the whole project was uh, trying to think with and about communities that were responding to uncertain circumstances in faithful ways. Yeah. Um, it was trying to think with communities who uh, had an imagination for uncertainty and were trying to form connections partnerships, collaborations in order to support local communities of faith amid uncertainty. And then um, the pandemic hit and it cast a whole new light on the project where, yeah. um, you know, you, as, as I was saying earlier, you don't, you don't go looking for a pandemic and you don't hope for an ecclesial crisis. But when this hit, I realized that, that the project was, 
I think more relevant than I ever could have imagined because so many communities of faith are having to lean into uncertain circumstances and adapt yeah. to challenges they could have never foreseen. It definitely takes on new meaning because now it's become not, not that it wasn't already relevant and say the Bible belt, because I think there's lots of ways in which it was, but this clearly that work becomes relevant just across the board, you know, and in a global sense too, not just in the U S because pretty much all churches have been forced into this place of, we don't know what to do. Like you just mentioned a minute ago, there's no script for this. Mm. And so churches, some churches have responded really well and they've, right. they've been able to be creative. Mm -hmm. And I bet you that most of those churches would have already have recognized some of the things in your research and they already had sort of a mentality of being adaptive. Mm -hmm. um, and then other churches uh, lack that sort of adaptive thinking. And right. so the best maybe they could do was sort of the technical challenge. Okay, we can put mm -hmm. worship online, but beyond that, we don't really mm -hmm. know what else to do, nor are we going to mm -hmm. dive into that. Mm -hmm. So I love how, like you said, nobody wants pandemic, nobody wants ecclesial no. crisis, nobody wants all the all the other stuff that's just come up even in the last couple of weeks, but churches mm. are trying to figure out how do we respond to right. conversations about defunding the police and mm -hmm. better statues and right, all right, right. of these kinds of things. But your work um, kind of hit at a time mm -hmm. where I hope folks will be able to latch onto it who might not have otherwise mm. done that. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to you. Um, getting at least a book or two out um Thanks. are you do you currently write for any outlets for any um online outlets or or that kind of thing yeah i i do i think um i think about my my work in vocation as coming alongside uh local communities and those who serve them um mm -hmm. so i think part of that is doing this type of kind of qualitative work where you're listening and mm -hmm. um, trying to offer something back to communities and um, insofar as my work has anything to offer, it's largely because of, of the wisdom of the local communities that I spent time with and their generosity. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then beyond that, um, I mean, writing is another key part of my vocation where I try to offer um, words and wisdom and meaning back to local leaders and communities of faith. Okay, well, maybe um, if, if, if you have some links, I can get those and I'll add those. Um, in sure. the podcast description so folks sure. can, can click on mm -hmm. something and maybe maybe find something that'd be a particular use as the yep. church is um facing this very odd time mm -hmm. that we're in yeah i, I kind of want to know so on some level there's there's a way in which this project seems like um almost very intuitive like of course somebody needs to study this kind of thing but then on another level, it's like, well, why haven't more people been doing that? And I know there have been some, but mm -hmm. why hasn't this been, you know, a, a major area of discussion, at least within the academy? I feel like it is more of a discussion in, in denominations or in mm -hmm. collectives of churches, whatever that might look mm -hmm. like. So how did this become like the big idea for you? When, yeah. 
what caused you to, to go down this avenue and look at this kind yeah. of work? Yeah, thanks, Justin. So I, I like I said at the beginning, I'm a, I'm a practical theologian, and that is a, a discipline that gives me um, resources and, and space to both attend to the particulars of local communities um, and do uh, interdisciplinary work that reaches across the academy. Um, mm-hmm. I, vis- I view my work as kind of bridging the church and the academy. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and out of that, I, I think about my, my work and my, question, my project as kind of always playing defense on my questions, mm-hmm. um, where it's not as if there's like this linear, clear trajectory, but it's always kind of this responsive mode, where it's always responding to kind of how the questions shift and how they move. And oftentimes those questions are shifting and moving in response to uh, my particular engagement in local communities of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent some time in the Pacific Northwest at an earlier point in my life. Um, I, was, I was born and raised in South Texas, uh, but I loved, I loved the mountains and I loved mm-hmm. the adventure. And I, had, I was interested in big questions, um, whatever that means when you're 17, 18. Uh, but I thought I could ask a different type of question in the Northwest. Um, so I went to school out there and then 10 years later, when it was time to, uh, to pick a dissertation topic, I, I found that my imagination kept going back there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't just to ask a different, a different type of question, but it was to ask uh, theological questions in a slightly different way. Um, the, the traditional way of studying religious organizations is you study a single type. Uh, mm-hmm. You typically study either congregations, theological schools, um, nonprofits, Christian colleges, um, and there was a, a strong tradition of studying kind of a single type of organization. Um, I was more interested in the intersections between um, individuals across organizations. So what I came to call kind of an ecclesial ecology. Uh, I was interested in studying where individuals from Christian colleges, religious philanthropy, theological education, congregations, kind of emerging forms of ecclesial life where those people were meeting and mingling. Um, because my sense was that, that theologically, these points of encounter might actually be spaces of creativity. And not only so, they might actually be spaces where the spirit of God is working, where the spirit of God is working to um, cross organizational boundaries, cross disciplinary boundaries, and bring new be- things to being, new imagination, new conceptual frameworks to bear. So where, where um, so then I, are these, where, where are these things crossing over? Where, where are people meeting and where are these discussions happening? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I found that it oftentimes, it's happening both within and beyond the, um, the traditional boundaries of disciplines and um, organizations. Um, so for the disciplines, um, you know, practical theology and organizational theory, there are two siloed disciplines that don't oftentimes speak to and meet each other. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even have, oftentimes have resources to engage in interdisciplinary dialogue. Um, they don't even really oftentimes see the other. Um, but there were kind of points of convergence where practical theologians are interested in uh, people of faith who necessarily inhabit organizations. Um, and organizational theorists are interested in organiz- and how organizations change. So I realized that um, this question of adaptation and change was kind of this pin, if you will, that could help kind of the, the door of a project pivot. Um, it held these two disciplines together 
in a meaningful and a coherent way. Um, and then for the organizations themselves, I found that um, people were oftentimes um, experimenting and innovating sometimes beyond, but also sometimes within established organizations. So in the case of the Parish Collective, um, their work emerged through uh, a history of engagement with the region um, that then was combined um, with kind of friendships at a critical time. So it was a collection of individuals who um, met through educational institutions, through time in the region, and they uh, began to uh, meet and gather and realize that other people were interested in experimenting with local neighborhood-based expressions, but they were disconnected. Um, in the case of the Office of Church Engagement, you had two individuals who were, had served in the region for um, almost 25 years, almost 50 years combined. So they had a rich history of serving within an institution there at Whitworth. Um, and they had a rich history and a rich connections across the community. Um, and as they listened to local communities of faith, um, they heard the people they were serving rec identify a need for new patterns, new connections, new resources. So they decided to start bringing people together in a similar way. Um, so in the, in the project, I talked about this as kind of do two different organizational environments. One is this kind of fixed set of organizational arrangements um, where in the case of kind of the Office of Church Engagement, the environment and the partnerships are clearly defined. Um, so you kind of know who the established partners are. You have a history of connection and collaboration. So kind of there's this, this fixed container that sets the conditions for innovation and adaptation. Um, the Parish Collective, meanwhile, kind of emerged out of what I call kind of an ambiguous set of organizational arrangements. Um, the partnerships are more fluid. Um, they're not clearly defined. Um, there's not always a history of collaboration. Um, so the parameters are a little more ambiguously defined. Um, and these have kind of comparative strengths or weaknesses. But I think to your original question, it's, it's just saying this is happening both within and also beyond organizational boundaries. And oftentimes we just have to have the eyes to see and the imagination to look for the places it's happening. So I'm interested in this idea of listening to the community because this is something that um, our church and some of the organizations we work with talk about. But I, I that seems a little bit too hard to grasp on to what that looks like. So in the cases of these organizations, what like what is listening to the community look like in a very practical sense? Are you are you knocking on people's doors and saying, hey, tell me everything you love and hate about your neighborhood? Or yeah. you know what what is listening to the community actually mm -hmm. mean in practice? Yeah. You know, I think it means a variety of things. And, and one, of, um, one of the things that emerged um, in my research is first just the priority of listening. Um, so the organizers and conveners of both organizations, um, just a bedrock practice is a commitment to listening. Um, but they can only listen because they've spent so much time in the region um, and they know the needs of their communities so well. Um, so for them, their, their practice of listening is, I think, closely conjoined to this practice of presence and proximity. 
so it's really difficult to listen if you're not proximate to the people you're serving. Um, and I think as I uh, listened to and learned from these people, I saw them practice listening in a few different ways. Um, first, they practiced listening by convening. Uh, they were really purposeful about how they got people together. Uh, they were attentive to uh, the conditions that enabled people to gather. Um, they're really masters of this. Um, I talk about this as kind of setting the table where these connectors and conveners, they just have this, uh, this wisdom, this intuition about how to gather people together. Um, and they're really masters of that. Um, I think um, another kind of key practice is uh, telling stories. Uh, so they would both listen, but then they would tell stories of local communities. Uh, they would tell stories of vitality amid precarity. Uh, they would tell stories of the abundance that's happening. Um, they would tell stories about the connections that are already there. To whom were uh, they telling these stories? Uh, they were sometimes telling them to, um, to other, other practitioners. Um, sometimes they were telling these stories to a broader community. Um, in other cases, they were just telling these stories to one another. Um, so if, if so many people in this work are lonely and isolated, it's so easy to feel discouraged. Yeah. Uh, but stories of vitality, stories of connection, stories of community uh, bring hope when um, sometimes it's difficult to endure and hope. Um, and, then, and then the final practice I would point to is there's, there's a practice particularly in the, um, the parish collective of what they call walking the neighborhood, uh, where you just walk and you listen for the, uh, you walk the, the place you serve and you just listen for um, the connections and the community and the needs of the local people where you serve. Um, so again, yeah. it's back to this idea of proximity. Uh, you don't know the needs of your people unless you're proximate to them. Yeah. I don't know how familiar you are with uh, Christian Community Development Association, but this, mm -hmm. this all sounds very familiar for anybody else who knows CCDA stuff that is, yeah. is one of their, their primary values is, is moving to the neighborhood. And that might not mean literally buy a house in the neighborhood, because for a variety of reasons that you know could be good or bad, but but being present on a regular basis in a place, I think you're hitting on something that's just massively important. Right. And for anybody listening, I want to say if you're trying to start a ministry, grow a ministry, whether that's you know help your ministry become more faithful or grow it in size or whatever this is this is this is spot on the the thing that needs to happen most is just be around mm -hmm. folks which is yeah. a weird thing to say right now um, right. but folks are even finding ways to to do that um through yeah. I mean, what's remarkable in this COVID moment is it's, it's almost as if there's like a, a turn to the neighborhood. I mean, when, mm -hmm. we, when we don't have the other forms of social organization, uh, when we can't gather in the places that we once did, um, when we are confined to our, our geographic locale, um, you oftentimes only have your neighbors. Yeah. Um, and it's striking to me the forms of connection, creativity, partnership, and care that, that have emerged in neighborhoods. I think of, 
about our neighborhood um, where um, just the, the beauty that emerged when people were shut in and at home, the ways people cared for one another. Um, it's just really, really remarkable. Again, you don't go looking for a pandemic. You don't hope for a crisis. But in the midst of that, it's, it's wonderful to see how people care for each other in their local context. And this is Justin Berenger, the Rogue Minister, signing off with my co-host. Rachel at Speech Strong Resources. And go check out our show notes. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review and comment. You can also submit questions, reviews, and comments on our Facebook page. And as always, be faithful to that which you have been called.